So in general, if we think about the overall progress, I think we already see this trend that AI is progressively being incorporated into traditional drug discovery pipelines. So I, I would confidently say that it's here to stay. You see it in startups and in the industry, in academia. So I, I think we should really all start to, to learn how to use AI and then what it means. Welcome to the 48th episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. We are a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anyone science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyists. My name is Susanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Jerome. Hi. We're here today with our guest, Assistant Professor Francesca Grisoni. And we're going to be talking about AI in drug discovery. Now, we are hearing more and more about AI with all the tools that are popping up. But we are really curious to hear how AI might help with the discovery of future treatments and how far this technology has come. So let's start. Welcome, Francesca. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yes, we're really happy that you're here too. Uh, and we're really curious to hear more about your research and about AI, of course. But before all of that, we would like to ask you to introduce yourself a little. Where do you come from? What do you do right now? Any interesting hobbies? Yeah, um, happy to. So I, I was born in the northern part of Italy, where I grew up, in, a, in the neighborhoods of a very small city called Como. Some people might know it because there's a lake. Yes. Uh, and then Dutch people tend to like the city. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I, I pursued my studies in, in Milano um, in environmental sciences. And um, I also pursued my PhD there. It's a long story with the environmental sciences. We might touch upon that. Um, yeah, I pursued my, my PhD studies there too. And then I moved to Zurich to uh, be a postdoc at ETH. Um, and there is when I, I switched topics and I started to work in the in the domain of drug discovery. Uh, and then I moved again to the Netherlands and now I'm in, in Eindhoven and I'm an assistant professor here. And basically what I do is that I, I lead a team that is quite interdisciplinary. It consists of um, chemists, biomedical engineers and computer scientists or computer engineers. And we work um in the domain of drug discovery to develop new ai tools um, what we really want to do is to push the boundaries of what these methods can do uh, to discover new therapeutics faster um, and when it comes to hobbies i i often joke about the fact that my hobby is to have hobbies mm-hmm. um so I, I tend to be a quite a curious person in nature so during my life I've, I've tried many things I've tried to learn how to play the ukulele the keyboards uh, guitar climbing uh, played basketball I tried to paint to be a comic drawer I've, I've tried many things um, but in the end only a few of these hobbies uh, stuck with me um, but I just like the process of trying new things so my let's say long-term hobbies are um, cooking, tasting beer, uh, traveling, and also hiking, which is a bit complicated in the Netherlands. So yeah, <laughs> I, I cycled here and I think it's a, it's a decent alternative, which, which I tend to like. Ah, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Works well with traveling as well that you get to t- test out different beers and yeah. It all yeah, works, exactly. You know. It's great. And also this is one of the best spots uh, in Europe for <laughs> beers because you're surrounded by many countries that, that have that. So <laughs> Yeah, I'm quite happy to be here, hobby-wise. <laughs> <laughs> so, co- touching back on the the getting into AI and drug discovery, what actually was the reason or what made you get started with researching AI and dis- drug discovery? And what was that journey like for you? Yeah, so um, 
I, I already mentioned it briefly, um, but I started out as an environmental scientist. So mm. my journey was not exactly the most linear one. Um, so at the beginning, it all started with just a passion for interdisciplinary research, which mm. is what made me choose environmental sciences in the first place. I was a bit naive probably back then. I was just like, okay, whoa, this is so interdisciplinary. And I love all of these disciplines. Let's just go. Um, and then during my studies, I realized that I liked everything that had a molecular angle and would combine chemistry and biology, but also really loved mathematics and everything that was a bit computational. So with my PhD, I started out actually um, with using machine learning to predict molecular properties but it was for toxicology. And the idea was that we wanted to develop machine learning methods that would be able to replace animal testing, for example, for regulatory purposes. Mm. And, and during my PhD, was in the group of uh, Roberto Tedeschini at the University of Milano, Bicocca. During my PhD, I had the opportunity to be hosted at ETH Zurich for a few months in the group of Gisper Schneider. And basically what to do is computer-assisted drug discovery. And for me, this was just like, I fell in love with it. Um, so, well, I realized that I could apply the same methods that I was using for toxicity prediction also to drug discovery. Mm -hmm. And that's what they were doing there already. But I, I really love the, the idea of, of contributing to accelerating how we can cure diseases we, we have no cure for yet. And also what, what I really, really loved back then was that you could make some predictions and then work with the chemist and he or she would or, or they would go to the lab test the molecules or make the molecules for you and in a few weeks or months you would immediately see whether your prediction was right and so you could improve upon it and for me this let's say interplay between computational studies and experimental studies was really what made me decide to 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 invest uh, in this in this topic and so um, yeah after that, uh, that's why I then, I then moved to ETH to continue as a, as a postdoc researcher. Hmm. And then now this is uh, basically uh, the same domain and, and we work uh, particularly with the deep learning approaches. Okay. Did you also already in your environmental sciences uh, study have experience with machine learning or did you have to pick all of that up uh, during your PhD? Yeah, so actually we had a course that uh, back then was called, and I think it's still called Chemometrics. And I would say Chemometrics is the predecessor of what today we might call molecular machine learning, molecular AI, or, or something like that. And the idea is that you apply statistical tools to study or analyze chemical data. Mm -hmm. um, and that's also where I, I met the professor that would be my supervisor in the following years. And I just, I was like, okay, this is amazing. I can merge all of the things I like. Uh, I love computers. I've always been a bit of a nerd. Um, I, yeah, I can do, yeah, you know, I, I, this is where I find everything I love mm -hmm. in just one discipline. Yeah, so that's also why I decided to, to continue with the thesis with them. Um, then, of course, I had to uh, improve and, and work quite a lot on my machine learning skills. <laughs> Um, and back then, yeah, you wouldn't have machine learning, explicit machine learning training during the studies. Mm. Uh, now it's getting better. Uh, but yeah, it was a bit of a, a bit of work, uh, but I loved every bit of it. So. <laughs> so you still use machine learning today in the lab, but for yes. us non-AI specialists, what does this look like? How does it work? How does a typical day look like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, let's first start maybe by by giving a very superficial definition of what machine learning is. 
Um, there are many definitions and many flavors of it, but we can think of it as a set of computational tools and algorithms that try and learn something from the data without being explicitly programmed. So the idea here is that if we want to tackle a very complex problem and we don't know the rules of how this process or problem works, so we cannot actually implement them because we don't know how it works, um, then we can use these algorithms that hopefully will learn something uh, from our data for us. And then we can apply what these algorithms learn uh, to new problems or uh, to, yeah, to solve our, our questions, to provide an answer to our questions. Um, and basically, th this is what we, we, we do in our lab. So the idea is that we want to accelerate um, the way in which we find molecules that might be a good starting point for drug discovery. And there you, you can imagine that the early phases of, of drug discovery involve finding molecules that interact with, uh, with a target. And this target is usually associated with a disease or, or something we want to modulate. And, and this is a very, very tricky problem because the, the, the number of molecules one could in theory design or make uh, is estimated to be up to 10 to the power of 60, right? So it's like a huge search space. And <clears throat> this search space is also very nonlinear. So if you just change one atom in a molecule, its properties might change drastically. So the idea here is that because the, com the problem is so complex, we, we resort to machine learning and, and hopefully by learning from data, these methods will be able to learn something from us and, and help us uh, find good molecules as, as starting points. Uh, how a typical day looks like? Well, one of the, the, the things that most researchers in this domain spend a lot of time on is data collection, data creation. So it's not all uh, fancy and, and shiny. But then, yeah, when, once you have uh, a reliable set of, of data that you trust as much as, as possible, of course, then you, you start trying to learn something with these machine learning algorithms. And then you can use them either to screen libraries of molecules you can purchase. So you say, okay, I have this library of thousands of molecules, which ones can I purchase? Uh, and once you do that, you purchase them, then somebody, a collaborator or um, yeah, other people in the team, somebody goes to the lab, they test that and, and tell you whether it works or not. Or you can also use these algorithms to come up with new molecules, so suggest them for mm -hmm. you. And then, yeah, hopefully they were good ones. Mm. Okay. So those are some of the ways, I guess you would say, that using AI and deep learning now is sort of outperforming, I guess, the what you would say, like the traditional way of drug discovery. Are there any other ways that AI might also outperform, I guess, the, the traditional way of drug discovery? Yeah, I'm not sure I would say it, it outperforms it necessarily. Mm. Um, I think it, it depends on what you're working on. I would say definitely one of the things that, that is enabled by, by AI is that we can iterate over a hypothesis much, much quicker. Mm. Because traditionally, otherwise, you would have uh, a medicinal chemist or a team of medicinal chemists that would uh, explore molecules in a bit of a trial and error. So you try and replace a small part of the molecule here and there make it and see whether it works. So here um, with AI, the scales, the, the time scales are, you know, very, very different. So it's, it's, it's really uh, faster. And also I think it's, it's a good hypothesis generator for humans. So for how I see it, it's really more of a, of a tool that complements how a human would look at the problem. And uh, so for me, it's really more of, uh, you know, 
yeah, suggesting hypothesis that then humans can test and feed their results back. Um, that, that's that's my my perception of it. Okay. So um, since you started your PhD, it has been about 10 years. How has the field of AI changed since then? Uh, were there cutting edge approaches back then that didn't work out? Or um, how many of the, the same approaches are still being used today with more fine tuning and optimization? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hearing that it's been 10 years makes me feel a bit old because <laughs> everything is moving so quickly. But uh, but yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would say the, the landscape has changed quite a, quite a bit. Um, and one of the biggest changes, and probably you, you also know this, is the advent of, of deep learning. And um, basically, briefly, deep learning is based on these neural networks that are somehow loosely inspired to how brains work. So the idea is that by, by building deep neural networks, so networks with, with many layers, you can hopefully be able to, to capture very complex and very nonlinear uh, information that you might have in your data. And um, in certain domains, um, deep learning has actually wiped out completely was, what was there before. Mm-hmm. And so it has also permeated like discovery. And I would say in general, um, in, in many types of tasks, uh, deep learning has indeed replaced what was there before. And one of these tasks um, I, I already mentioned, and it's uh, de novo design. So how to come up with new molecules from scratch. And for example, um, one flavor of deep learning that has been particularly successful is inspired by uh, natural language processing. And in the same way in which you can generate new text um, by learning from large data sets of, of text, you can also use similar approaches to, to design new molecules from scratch. Basically, this tends to outperform everything else that was there before because you actually don't need rules on how to make up a molecule, uh, which is quite tricky, right? Because mm-hmm. we know that not all of the possible combinations of atoms will make a molecule that makes sense. Uh, and these approaches actually uh, seem to be quite good in learning how to design a molecule from scratch that is also active on the intended target. But in other tasks, so for example, predicting whether a molecule is active or not, actually very complex deep learning approaches do not outperform uh, other simpler approaches. So there's still a lot of work to do in that domain. Um, so it is good that, yeah, some of the, let's say, old and, and, and good approaches are still there. So it's, it's not that it's really a complete revolution, but um, yeah, it has had some quite successful stories. And maybe the, the second thing I would say that has changed in the last few years is how experimental scientists look at AI. So my impression when I started my, my PhD was that people would just not believe in machine learning at all. It was like, yeah, this is just a model. Why, why would I care when I can just go to the lab and yeah, um, set up a few experiments? Well, now I think with, with uh, these initial successful stories, um, experimentalists are starting to, to see the potential of these approaches. And very often they reach out to, to me or to other people working in this domain. And I think it's just super cool. And, and the only way in which we can really obtain progress in the field, um, just by actually collaborating between people that come from different domains and have a different perception uh, of what we are trying to solve. Now, you mentioned that uh, the deep learning doesn't always outcompete sort of the, the, what was there before. Uh, are there any additional limitations to maybe not specifically deep learning, but also just the AI models in general that you can think of? Yes. Um, yeah. So 
this is uh, an ongoing topic of discussion and there's a lot of research from the deep learning community or machine learning community on the, on the limitations of these approaches. And let's say the, the most important ones, especially when it comes to our domain of application. Um, so, so the, the drug discovery applications are, are a few that come to mind. Uh, probably the most important one is that is the, what we call out of uh, distribution generalization. And the idea there is that I already mentioned it. Uh, so you use some data to train your model. So the model is only as good as the data you train it with, first of all. But also we have a second um, problem that the model only sees the distribution of the data you use to train it, right? And very often in drug discovery, we want to get out of that distribution. So for example, we want to find molecules that are particularly novel in the structure so that we can patent it or better than what we have for training the model. And there the models uh, really struggle because you're basically asking them to take a leap out of what they have seen before. Mm. I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's, it's definitely something challenging that has been receiving a lot of attention in the deep learning community, but also in, let's say, the molecular uh, deep learning community or machine learning community. And then, of course, they are models. Uh, so, yeah, uh, they're not perfect. And, and very often we have uh, the problem that they might be very confident uh, despite being wrong. And so you say, oh, these molecules are perfectly great. Uh, look at the predictions. And then you go to the lab and you maybe discover that none of them works. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's a lot of, of research also um, going on in that domain to try and, and uh, spot these cases, for example, with what we call explainable AI. It tries to uh, get some information about uh, the inner functioning of a model or why a model reached a certain decision or, yeah, to, to, let's say to try and inform the, the humans uh, that work with that about why the model reached a certain decision and whether we can trust it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then maybe one last thing uh, that is particularly true for the drug discovery domain is that, as I already said, AI models need data. Uh, and if you look at the domains where deep learning has been or machine learning has been particularly successful, these are the domains where we have millions of data. You can think about image processing and generation or natural language processing. While in drug discovery, we really have small data sets. If we're lucky, they go up to a thousand, or a couple of thousand molecules. Uh, but in many cases, you have tens of molecules. Uh, so training a deep learning uh, or machine learning model there is, is quite, quite tricky. So this is also something the community has, has been investing quite some energy in. So how to generate models that are more reliable in this extreme, extremely low uh, data regime. And um, this is definitely something cool to, to work on. Yes. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in other AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph. 
completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers. Just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. Uh, so you've already mentioned that the field has become a little bit better at accepting this, this deep learning methods. But what are the, the biggest challenges you still face as an AI researcher? Is it the communication or staying up to date with all these new developments or anything else? Yeah, so it's, it's both the things you said and maybe also something else. Yeah, definitely the main thing for me is to keep up with the literature. So these are topics that are just so hot, both in the, let's say, pure machine learning community, but also the, the drug discovery application is particularly attractive nowadays. So really the number of preprints and peer-reviewed papers that come out is, is huge. So we have to accept that it's just impossible to be up to date uh, and to hope that by actively searching for what you want to be up to date for, you will find uh, what you need. And also, of course, we can rely on, on communities like the ones we have on Twitter or Mastodon or others to hope that if something cool pops up, it will be um, yeah, echoed uh, and, and will be uh, communicated uh, within the community. Yeah, and, and this also leads to what I think is the second, um, let's say, challenge that we have. That is that we have a lot of competition in the domain because now we have, of course, domain specialists that learn how to work with machine learning, but also experts in deep learning that, uh, you know, love or, or want to, to research in this, in this domain. So there's really a lot of, a lot going on. Um, but I, and, and I think it might be challenging, especially for the younger researchers like PhD candidates, which, um, maybe invest a lot of time in their project, uh, only to see that somebody else was quicker. So it, it mm. might, I guess it might be a bit of, uh, pressure for them. But actually, all in all, what I think is that even if we have different papers or publications that might be somehow close to each other, this is not really a rat race, but it's more that, well, it shows that a topic is interesting and also slightly different studies can complement each other because they cannot be identical. So I, I think we should look at it in this way. Um, and yeah, I hope that all in all, the, the very good approaches will survive the test of time. And, and so we will sooner or later stumble upon them and, and find them. And then maybe the last limitation or not a limitation, the last challenge is uh, really communicating from people that come from different domains, because we, we really work at the interface between many disciplines, chemistry, biology, deep learning, computer science, yeah, and uh, whatnot. So, and every of these, every one of these disciplines have their own language somehow. So it, it happens very often that it's, it's, it can be tricky to, to communicate with experts. But in my experience, this is just a learning experience and very rapidly we, we converge upon a shared language and uh, yeah, this is just a source of, uh, of growth, mm -hmm. of scientific growth. So I, 
actually, I don't mind this. I, I, I actually like it quite a lot. Nice. So maybe pivoting a little bit, um, I read about the clever Hans effect. But maybe to for our listeners, could you explain what that actually is and how that could be maybe a problem for interpreting results for AI? Yeah, sure. I, this is one of my favorite uh, topics when I give a lecture. I'm really into the story <laughs> of the Clever Hans. I don't know how much you read about it. It's just oh, anyway. Okay. Actually, um, this name comes from a horse, uh, which was called Hans. Uh, I think it was in the 19th or 20th century. And this, ho- this horse was claimed to be able to perform um, arithmetic operations. And basically, um, the, the horse would be presented with a mathematical problem and uh, it would uh, tap his hoof to provide a reply. And very often, this would be the right answer. So, of course, people were super excited about this horse. It was super clever. That's why it was called Clever Hans. And, and then, of course, it also attracted some skepticism and, and people wanting to understand how come that the horse can, can suddenly perform arithmetic operations. And basically, uh, what was discovered back then is that the horse was not really able to perform these operations, but uh, actually it was responding to involuntary cues that the trainer of the horse was providing without even being aware of it. Mm-hmm. So since then, the, the clever Hans effect uh, has been used as a, as a name to denote occasions in which the right answer is provided for the wrong reason. Mm. And so, of course, this is also quite a, an important topic when it comes to, to AI, and in particular to denote whenever an AI model uh, provides the right prediction, but for the wrong reasons. So, for example, because it has found a, a shortcut uh, and and Machine learning and in particular deep learning approaches are quite good at, at finding shortcuts in the data. Uh, and if you're interested, there is quite a, a, a cool publication in Nature Communications uh, from 2019 mm-hmm. from the group of Klaus Robert Müller. And basically there, they, they show a few examples of how these, these neural networks are actually very good at picking up uh, these shortcuts. And in one of these examples, you have a model that is trained to label images to predict what is in the image. And they found out that all of the images that they had in the training set uh, that were related to a horse actually contained a small label. Um, And I think it was the label of the photographer that that took that picture. So the network learns that whenever you had that tiny label uh, at the bottom of the image, then it had to predict a horse. And as soon as you remove the label, then the the network would be very confused. And the idea is that actually it just learned a a shortcut. It's Mm -hmm. like a very lazy student uh, that tries and and cheats at uh, (laughs) the exam. Uh, And so this is is, uh, for sure a problem because we might actually end up trusting the prediction Mm -hmm. of a model without actually knowing that it's it's learning something else that might not apply when we go to the real world and maybe invest money in that so of course there are many many ways of uh, trying to make sure that that your model is not finding shortcuts and it may mainly relates to the data that we feed in how we we split them for training uh, whether we can check if there are biases or not um, and so on and so forth and and in this also the explainable ai approaches that i mentioned before so how can we get a glimpse into what the deep learning model is is learning these approaches can also be quite useful to to try and see, try and understand why uh, a prediction is is what it is, mm. and find these cases. Right. 
And also something that we have seen in our own research come by recently in the past year was AlphaFold, which is a program that's supposed to predict the structure of your protein. Uh, now, there have been some strong opinions about it. Some people think it's not working well. Some people think it's amazing. What do you think about it? Is it, is it overhyped? Is it a cool tool to use? Uh, and, and how impactful do you think it will really be? Yeah. Uh, yeah, AlphaFold is very often one of the central topics on uh, uh, when, when people speak about AI. And I have to say that this, that predicting the structure is quite an important problem in biology and everything that relates to it. Because as, as you might know already, the, the structure of a protein, so actually how it folds, starting from a sequence of amino acids, is what determines the, the properties and the, the, um, yeah, the, the, the function of this protein. So really, it is very cool that we have tools that, that allow us to, to have an idea of how this protein might fold. Um, so personally, I, I do think it is a scientific breakthrough uh, with some caution. So let's start first by saying why I, I, I think it is a scientific breakthrough. Well, the first reason is because of the accuracy uh, that this model has. And so in the CASP challenge, when it would, was first presented, it was basically just so much better than everything that has been there before. Um, so and this is, of course, impressive and, and good because it means that you have a tool that has quite a good accuracy. So it, uh, it can give you um, good suggestions about how a protein might fold. And also, it's great to see how many applications are, are following and how people are trying to use it or extend it. This is just very cool. And um, also, it is a scientific breakthroughs, uh, breakthrough because of the number of structures that it uh, allows to regenerate. And you probably know that there is a dedicated repository that keeps expanding. So you can just go there and find your structure and uh, people are trying to cover as much as we can about this uh, about the, the protein sequences that, that humans know of. So it's, it's just great. And I think it is indeed a breakthrough. Um, the reason why I'm saying we should still be cautious when we speak about AlphaFold is that uh, we have to remember that somehow this, was, this effort was sitting on the shoulders of giants um, in the sense that we already have said how important it is to have enough data and reliable data and so the, the data sets that this, um, this model and similar models were trained on have been collected for decades and curated. So basically this made for the perfect problem for uh, a group of uh, skilled AI engineers and, and scientists. And then of course you needed a, a team of very skilled people and great computational resources. And so when, when uh, this uh, combination happens, then there, there you had it, there you had your, your breakthrough. Then, of course, we have to remember that AlphaFold is a model. And don't get me wrong, many other things are models, even wet lab experiments or the animal models used in drug discovery. So they all have their limitations. But yeah, as a model, it inherits some of the, let's say, challenges we have spoken about already. So uh, the difficulties in generalizing out of the training data distribution. So of course, when you have super challenging cases uh, in which other tools fail because the sequences are different from all the other sequences we know. And also it's likely to, to expect that uh, also alpha folds will fail there because it's, it's not perfect. And then of course, it can also provide highly confident predictions uh, that are wrong. It can also be prone to adversarial, adversarial attacks. I think mm -hmm. I stumbled upon a paper yesterday 
And these adversarial attacks are basically a small change in the input structure, in the input sequence that um, will lead to very different results in the predictive structure. So it basically inherits all the limitations that mm. all the other AI models have. And then when we look at it from the biological point of view, probably another limitation, but it's not AlphaFold's fault, it's just the data uh, we have, is that actually protein structures are not a static thing. Um, they are very dynamical. So it's a, yeah, it, it, it's not a snapshot. And then of course, when you when you predict a structure, you just get one of all of the possible uh, configurations uh, of a, of a protein. So this is a limitation because in some cases this dynamical aspects is aspect uh, is key for for example drug discovery or to really understand protein behavior. Yeah, but uh, but I do think that that these efforts, alpha fold, rosetta fold, and similar approaches will, will actually lead to quite some progress in, in the long run because people can just use them and, and build upon them. Yeah, I also love how accessible they are being made. A lot of these things yes. also. It's like great. Yeah, it's it's great. I'm 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 really impressed. It's 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 amazing. Even the the fact that you can now access all the predictive structures by by AlphaFold, I think in 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 a collaborative effort with Emble, I think it's, it's just great mm-hmm. that they're making this effort. It's, it's extremely valuable to the community. Mm-hmm. All, all types of communities, actually, deep learning people, but also uh, experimentalists and, yeah. and other people. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so touching on the progress that uh, AI has been making, has made in the past and probably will continue to make in the future. Where do you see that sort of actually going? Will there be sort of one AI model for that works well for basically all types of drug discovery, or do you see multiple in different uh, areas? Uh, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in in general, if we if we think about the overall progress, I, I think we already see this trend that AI uh, is progressively being incorporated into traditional drug discovery pipelines. So I, I would confidently say that. It's here to stay. Uh, you see it in startups and, and in the industry, in academia. So I, I think we, we should really all start uh, to, to learn how to use AI and then to, to think uh, about how, how it works and what it means. Um, and if I can make a prediction about what will happen in my specific uh, domain of application, I do not think that there will be a one-size-fits-all mm. type of model. Um, for many reasons. Uh, one of these reasons is that whenever we work with a given macromolecular target, for example, so let's say it's a protein, we want to activate or inactivate, let's say, uh, in a very superficial way of speaking about it. So there, the the way in which, for example, the, the structure affects, the molecular structure affects the, the activity on this protein really is different depending on the protein we're looking at. So um, it's a bit, let's say, overly optimistic to think that we will have a, a model that is able to learn all of these uh, different ways in which a given molecular structure might interact with, with innumerable targets. And also, there are very different tasks that one might want to perform in drug discovery. So one might be interested in predicting the properties of existing molecules, uh, but in another project, you might want to have generative approaches, so come up with new molecular structures that might be interesting. So, and each of these tasks might require different architectures, different training data, and so on and so forth. 
what I think that might happen uh, in, uh, instead is that we will um, get to some sort of uh, quote unquote foundational models. Mm. So where we can use all of the existing data that we had on all of the molecules that humans have been able to discover and, and test so far to build, let's say, the an initial model uh, that knows something about the chemistry and biology of the problem. And then this initial model can be fine-tuned using a, a very focused data set. And so also allow us to use smaller data sets that are, are focused uh, so that every scientist can can yeah can fine-tune it for their own their mm. own needs. Do you have any other emerging trends that you think uh, might might come up in the coming years? Yeah, so if we if we look at our um, specific domain, I think um, yes, we, we we still I still I already touched upon them, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, one of them is really how can we make sense of very small data sets and still make a reliable um, machine learning model. And also, in some cases, it's even interesting to to explore how we can use machine learning when we have no data at all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and humans sometimes do that. You you learn how to work on a related problem, and then you can transfer this knowledge and approach unexplored tasks. Um, so this is also a trend that will be, in my opinion, progressively important in the next few years, because in drug discovery, very often you, you have to work with these completely unexplored targets. So it would uh, it would be quite quite cool to to see uh, good research popping up there. Another topic we we are working on, and I see it's getting increasingly um, popular, is active learning. And the idea there is that you so in a let's say in a normal pipeline you would take some data, train your model, make some prediction, go to the lab, see if it works, and if it works, you're happy. If it didn't, yeah, you 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 face your uh, the corner of your office for a few hours until you're over it mm-hmm. and then you 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 start again um while with active learning the idea is to embrace failure to some extent and just let the model choose what it needs and what you need to test to improve the model itself and hopefully to reach your goal faster and this is quite important because if you if you think about drug discovery and other chemical let's say chemistry applications uh it's quite expensive to perform these experiments so the idea is that I let the model choose a few molecules that might be interesting. I go to the lab, test only these few molecules, but they were chosen to improve the model. So you test them. And even if they're wrong, it doesn't matter because you will use them to correct your model. Mm. And you keep going for a few iterations. And the idea there is really that you are smart in how you pick your data and in how you spend your money. And hopefully you can reach your goals faster uh, in a also, let's say, cost-effective uh, way. Mm. Um, and then one final thing, it, it, it relates to, to, um, the activities of, of my, of my group. Um, uh, basically one of the problems we have or, or things we could do better is how we actually encode chemical information for computers mm-hmm. to learn from, because, you know, uh, molecules are very complex entities. They are not static. There are many ways in which we can represent them. And most of the ways in which we encode chemical information for computers uh, was born way before the deep learning uh, renaissance or the AI, um, let's say, hype, if I can call it that way. I'm not, I don't think it's a hype, but you know what I mean? Um, 
so they're not suited really for um, they were not thought with deep learning uh, in mind and also they very often fail to capture very important aspects mm. so I, I recently was awarded an ERC starting grant that is really dedicated to design new and, and more sophisticated way to to capture this this information for AI to learn from uh, I don't know if it will be a trend. Of course, I hope so. I hope uh, <laughs> other people will follow us in, in this and, and maybe have even better ideas uh, than, than ours. But I think this is really important. And I hope that we will be able as a community to, to improve this aspect, um, which is quite a limiting factor. Okay. Yeah, clear. If our listeners want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? Or do you have a website? Or <laughs> So I'm on Twitter. Uh, my name is Fra underscore Grisoni. So, yeah, just my uh, nickname and my surname. Um, they can also follow my, my team on Twitter. They're called Molecular Machine Learning. Yeah, I'm also on Mastodon, but I don't have many followers there. So, yeah, <laughs> if anyone wants to follow me. Uh, and then I'm on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, it was really nice to have you as a guest and we learned a lot. <laughs> If our listeners have any questions, suggestions, comments, or papers you really need to read, you can reach out to us via our website, strugglingscientist.com. You can also check, check out our website for some really cool science-inspired merch and to sign up for our awesome uh, newsletter, aka the Journal of the Struggling Scientists. Um, and you can also follow us on social media. Jaden, which ones are those again? LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Mastodon. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you all next time. Bye. Bye.